Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Moore Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of venture capital. With us today is Samil Shah. Samil is a Silicon Valley-based investor at Haystack Fund. He's also a venture partner at Lightspeed Ventures and a thought leader who's made meaningful contributions on TechCrunch, Quora, Harvard Business Review, and of course, Twitter. Samil, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Madam Moore, and thank you, Justin. And yeah, this is my first uh, sort of triple location podcast. So we're, <laughs> awesome. we're one, one square away from a house party. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, as I was preparing for this episode, one of the things that struck me is that the role of a VC is quite similar to the role of a futurist, right? You're making predictions and you're betting on what's going to happen in the future, which companies, which ideas, which industries are going to succeed. So I think a good place to start would be getting a sense for what your system is for predicting the future. How do you evaluate an investment opportunity and decide whether it's worth uh, taking it up? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Did I, I'm going to start quoting the, the Robert Mueller testimony from last week, which is, <laughs> I don't, I don't, subscribe to how you characterize it. I actually don't think what VCs do are uh, futurists. Actually, I don't really know what a futurist does. I would imagine there's somebody who who's sort of paid to think in like long range, uh, long range thinking. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some people are really good at that. There, I'm sure there's some journalists that try to do that. I'm sure there are some VCs that try to do that. I don't really approach things that way. Um, I have a really different philosophy, which is technology. Um, <clears throat> technology is super interesting. We all like it. It all helps us, you know, for the most part. But actually, when you're investing, you're investing in people who are applying technology to other mm. things. And so, because it's the people applying them, I tend to personally take a more people-based approach. Um, you certainly look at the totality of the decision, but I kind of start with the people. Now it's a little cliche to say that, so I should explain why. So my belief is the people applying the technology or the network or the product or service to the market that you're underwriting. I also believe philosophically that investors, we don't, we're not capable of knowing what that future is. Mm. And so it's really the founders who hold those secrets. Now, some people as founders have incredible secrets. Some of them stumble into them and some of them have really bad ones, right? Where they could envision a world and it's just not that exciting a world or not that big of a world. Um, And so my my point of view is that as an investor, I literally wake up every day and I'm sort of like sitting in the firehouse waiting for someone to ring the bell and then I jump down, down the fire pole. And it's more like I want to meet a lot of people and then talk with them and then sort of like be hooked on their ideas and their personal story and then sort of follow them into where they're going. Um, so, so, you know, I, I don't think of it as a futurist. I think it's much more of a reaction to the network and the environment that I'm in. Right. Um, yeah. And what kind of characteristics do you look for? in a founder? Yeah, it's, uh, I've been asked this question a lot recently, and so the way I describe it is, imagine you're playing a video game, and the protagonist in the video game, 
you know, when you start out at the beginning of the, the game, you have like a hundred percent life meter. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine that's an, an entrepreneurial meter. And so I think what makes opportunities attractive is if somebody has some blend of um, industrial or technical acumen or insight that's that's sort of organically um, receipt, uh, sort of organically cultivated or or built over time, um, paired with, and that's kind of the talent piece, paired with sort of uh, evidence of entrepreneurial behaviors and attributes, tenacity, resilience, and those those are really tough to, to suss out. And what you want, what I want is in a perfect scenario um, that the combination of that technical acumen experience plus the resiliency, grit, tenacity adds up to 100, and you're never going to get a 50-50 blend. <laughs> yeah. And so you're just, you're just trying to calibrate to say, okay, is this a 100 you know, a hundred point person. And if so, what's the blend and what am I getting into? Sometimes you meet people that don't have that technical sophistication and insight, or maybe they have a little, but they have a tremendous amount of resilience. And then sometimes you meet people who are super talented and, you know, maybe they, they're only working 30 hours a week, but they're kind of artists or maestros. Mm -hmm. Um, and so just looking for what's the blend and what am I getting into? Right. So a lot of the success might be meeting with enough people and getting connected with the right people. So how do you connect with founders? And are most of them based in the Bay Area? Um, most of them are based in the Bay Area. I would say there's sort of like sprinklings in New York and L.A. and Seattle, and then maybe a few drops elsewhere. But it's primarily a Bay Area thing. Um, I've I've sort of backed into this network where I put out my thoughts and my beliefs um, and then just let those people kind of come to me or have the network bring it to me. I think it's too hard to go outbound. Yeah. Um, you know, how would you know where to go? And so I think of it much more as like a flow of people and that the portfolio that you end up building end up, ends up becoming some reflection of the relationships and network you have access to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've noticed that, I mean, you've been a thought leader in this space for so long and I've been following you on Twitter and Quora for quite some time. So Mm -hmm. I can see how that more inbound approach is a good strategy. Can I I use another, uh, another Mullerism? Yeah. Uh, I don't see things that way. I don't, I don't try to be a thought leader or I I honestly don't know what that term means. The way, the way I try to do it or what you've seen on Twitter or on Quora is I will just share what I see on the ground um, and share it with other people. And I think people over time have have found value in that, Um, but it's not by design. I think it's more, you know, I I sent a tweet last Friday about how the certain subset of founders right now are bypassing seed firms and going right to the larger funds, which which you could argue is against my own self-interest. But... I was just trying to make an observation that it turned out a lot of other people were seeing. And so I don't think of it as thought leadership as more as like sharing observations in real time. Right. Um, just being I just want to make that, I just want to make that distinction. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah. So I, I mean, because you're on the ground and because you have such an authentic viewpoint, 
I'm curious how you see the VC landscape as a whole, meaning how has it evolved from when you first got involved in this space until now? Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. And if you ask any VCs privately, they would say that it's just, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> never seen anything like this where, you know, it's, it's too knee jerk a reaction to say it's, it's crazy and it doesn't make sense. I think it's just crazy and it actually makes sense and I'll explain why, but you know, you have a lot of companies that have a lot of durability underneath them. I think the question will just end up becoming around ultimate price. Um, but essentially what you have what, and what's changed in the six and a half years I've been investing, although I think this trend started earlier. Imagine you're in the kitchen and you're, you're, you're making soup and you're just taking things from the kitchen and you're kind of like, hey, I got to clean out the fridge and make some soup. Um, and so what are you throwing in there? You're throwing in a no particular order, um, low interest rate environment, right? You're throwing in the fact that the cost of starting companies has, you know, can like at least spinning up products, not maybe the company building has gone mm -hmm. down. Um, you have uh, this sort of cultural moment around Shark Tank, HBO Silicon Valley, Twitter, right. um, uh, the Facebook social network movie, um, where, where this is a cultural thing that people want to do. Then you have like a demographic issue where people are graduating college and saying, well, I don't want to go work at this at Citibank or I don't want to go work at Frito-Lay. I want to go start a company or, or do something um, more forward like that. So you have people opting into different career paths. Um, you have globalization of like the installation effect of the, of the internet and mobile network so that, you know, if you start Zoom in 2000, you don't have enough bandwidth, you don't have enough of an install base mm to make Zoom work, but then if you start Zoom in 2009 or 10, and then the iPhone hits, and then it goes, they open in China and Indonesia, and the headroom just becomes like enormous, right? right. Um, and then I think you have these very capital efficient examples of what I'm talking about, like right now, like Slack and Zoom, you know, where they start out as like five or six or $10 billion companies, but you can actually see the headroom going to like, 50 to 100 billion if they execute on the opportunity. So when you when you throw, oh, let me add one more, which is more of a macro thing. Think of economies, um, oh, sorry, think of like countries where their economy is based entirely on one asset or a basket of a type of assets, and they feel like the price of that over time is going to drop, and mm. so they want to diversify their holdings, and so they invest in SoftBank or they invest directly right. in like Saudi's sovereign company. fund and exactly. Mm -hmm. So when you throw all of that in the kitchen from your fridge into the pot and you start boiling it, that's what you get today. Right. Right. Yeah. It's amazing because there used to be this constraint of capital, especially after dot com bust. Yeah. Everyone was trying to get money, but there wasn't enough money to go around. Now it seems like there is more than enough capital and I know you mentioned in your blog that world after capital is an interesting yeah. way of framing this where maybe the constraints are no longer land. They're no longer capital. Instead, it's attention because there's only so yeah. many eyeballs to be looking at so many yeah. products at any given time. So to be fair, to be fair, there the folks who are interested in that, it's not my idea. It's Albert Wenger from um, Union Square Ventures. Albert is like 
I don't say this lightly. He's like a real polymath and genius. Um, you know, probably could be on the faculty of, you know, name your favorite aspirational school. Um, mm-hmm. And so his whole thesis is that what Matamor was just saying is like we move from agrarian age to industrial age to information age. And when you move between those kind of epochs, if you will, you get a lot of uh, dislocation, a lot of volatility, a lot of people feeling angst. Um, and so, you know, th- th- there's all sorts of discussions we can have around that. I think the punchline is that capital now, if you if you subscribe to Albert's thesis, which I do, capital now is so abundant that you have to, you know, the 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 premium on, on figuring out what to pay attention to, either as an investor or as a founder, um, is even greater. Um, and, and the attention that um, consumers or, or companies give to certain products is even greater. So, like, think of something like Zoom. And if you think of something like Slack, it's actually a fun example. People are inside Slack all the time messaging and like moving discussions off of uh, iMessage or WhatsApp or, you know, moving those work conversations off email, off those personal channels into a more um, uh, low key system. And from there, you could argue that maybe the future of Slack is to grow into a point where they have video conferencing just built in as a feature and they subsume Zoom. Right. Whereas you have Zoom and folks are in Zoom all day long, Zooming in and out. Um, and so should they have their own messaging app, right? I'm, I'm just I'm just sort of yeah. sharing an example where like the attention that that the users and the companies are giving these two products is going to be could be so much larger than any other product um, that they end up accumulating that value. And that's like an embodiment of Albert's like attention thesis. Right. Yeah. It's really relevant now too, especially because people have been calling for Facebook to be broken up and breaking up all of these big tech companies. But from a customer standpoint, I don't want to have to advertise on like, you know, 20 different platforms. I, it's much easier to just advertise on Facebook or likewise, if you're communicating with your colleagues, it's easier to just use one tool that has everything rather than all of these disparate tools. So do you think that that trend of sort of consolidation of the most useful products is going to continue in the future? Yeah, I don't know. I think because you're you were saying you're growth, you're doing growth marketing, right? Yeah. So you're you're probably living inside Facebook or Instagram, depending on what you're doing, right? And there's right. everyone else is kind of a second class citizen. I I think in terms of like what people are saying about regulating. Facebook, which it's its own discussion and podcast. Mm-hmm. I think that's more around like freedom of speech issues around, you know, this whole debate, which I think is silly about people doing hate speech or propagating hate speech. And like, where, you know, where do you think that can go? I mean, I think the evidence is pretty clear that they are acting as a publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, but that is a debate that people have. Um, I think there's debate around like real identity and like um, like what actually gets propagated through the network. So like, can you post anything in Facebook? Then can it spread anywhere? And how do you stop the spread of 
misinformation, disinformation, hateful information, things like that. I think that's where a lot of the issue is coming from, and it goes back to Cambridge Analytica, mm -hmm. um, which is then the third piece, which is like federation of data. Um, but I think around like advertising and stuff, if you took Facebook advertising or Instagram advertising away from a new proprietor, a person trying to build up their new e-commerce site, I mean, they would have nowhere to go. Yeah. Right. And it's so cost efficient that um, people haven't really thought through that. So anyway, that's just like a Facebook argument in terms of like co consolidation. You know, I think Zoom and Zoom is an interesting one to look at because all the tailwinds are behind Zoom. Like Slack actually has like real competition. Um, you know, you have Microsoft Teams, you have Facebook at work. Um, you just have iMessage, right, which works for a lot of people or WhatsApp. Um, whereas with Zoom, Zoom has just gone straight by Google Hangouts. They've gone mm -hmm. straight by Skype. I mean, it's just like, it just seems like the future is theirs. And so then it becomes the answer to your question around consolidation. Can they continue to get the product experience right as they go into more adjacencies? Will they be able to switch people off of Slack into the Zoom chat because it's got a chat function? Um, I don't know the answer. It feels like if anyone could do that, it's Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, but it's you know it's easier said than done. Right. Yeah, another adjacent trend is the automation trend where things like, you know, a classic example is the Amazon Go stores, which don't require any checkout clerks. And you could basically take that model and play it across the whole retail ecosystem. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on taking automation and the attention economy into account. How is this going to impact job prospects for, you know, a lot of our uh -huh. listeners are Gen Z, you know, millennials, uh, younger age cohorts. How yeah. is this, are these trends going to impact jobs and what can be done yeah. to improve job prospects? Well, I've, well, yeah, I don't know if I can answer the last question, <laughs> but I think, I think um, I have invested in maybe one or two companies in this like physical automation space. Um, and a large part of the thesis was that having humans do the work, let's say in like security or building security, is costly on an hourly or annual salary basis. It's costly in a healthcare and benefits basis. And it's costly in a are we capturing all the data that we want to capture basis. And so if you look at it from a from that cost and security basis, um, automation makes a lot of sense, right? So if you have in a building with 25 floors, if you have 15 security guards, and then you move to one or two security guards with a network of these automated uh, sensors and robots, you can really control, for less money, you can control more of your physical environment. Right. Now, there's a debate on what that means for people. There are a bunch of people who take an argument where they say, you know, this is really bad. When it comes, it's going to, like, decimate the economy. A lot of the economy is retail. A lot of the economy is, like, gig labor slash um, temporary labor. 
um, transportation, and like, driving, transportation, driving, and it's just going to crush these people. Um, and if I go back and I think about Al- what Albert would say, not to like put words in his mouth, I think he would say, look, this is that dislocation that happens in a finite period of time when this, these kind of transitions happen, right? And so that's where the political and social angst comes from, is understanding that's going to be coming, right? I think there's another set of people who are more optimistic who are maybe not taking that short-range view. Um, and again, I think both views are valid, where they're kind of saying, like, well, look, think about all the new networks that are popping up, or, like, you can run your business partly off Skype and um, face Instagram ads. And so basically it will release their attention from, um, let's say, lower skilled work of like pulling a coffee or walking the grounds of a building to make sure things are secure, freeing up that attention and brain power to then go start a podcast, start an Instagram store, start all those things. And I think it's a reasonable person can hold both views on this um you know we can get into the politics of it and what your philosophies are um but i think that that's that's sort of like what's happening now in ways to like retrain um or or sort of like train people i i would actually point folks to this company it's actually a company in the lightspeed portfolio called uh, white hat it's in it's in the uk and essentially what the uk has done is kind of said look a bunch of you people who are going into high school, uh, sorry, who are in high school, who, who may go on to college, like let's offer them an alternative. Like you may not want to go to college. You may not want to go into debt to go to college. And we'll make an internship program um, sort of like nationalized across different companies in the UK. And so you could do a rotation at Google for nine months and then you could do a rotation at uh, Leeds of London for nine months and just kind of build up your education and your cohort that way. And the government has supported this. And there's talk of like this trend spreading across Europe. Um, so I think government's going to have to get involved. I think the the beauty of the White Hat model and the dream of White Hat is that um, people can, I think reasonable people can see that as a great future alternative for a large population. I think the trouble is, what if you're 48 and you're, um, you know, you're a security guard today. What's going to happen to you today? Right. And I don't, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, you I think, do think UBI is, has issues, or, or are you in favor of that? That. Oh, that's like a whole separate topic. I mean, Albert and like the candidate he supports, uh, Andrew Yang. I think. Yeah. I, I don't want to. I don't want to like speak too much on behalf of Albert, or or mischaracterize something. Um, I think universal basic income is a really interesting experiment. Um, I don't really know like what's happened in places where it's been tried. So I don't, I, I'm not up to date on the data. Um, it seems like the U S could afford that plus healthcare plus other things that advanced nations have. It just seems that the manner in which um, our country has like been debating these things comes down to the fact of like what is an American ethos? Um, is it freedom to choose, or is it um, like being directed to told what to do within the system, right? And so, 
you know that that is a softer way of describing what's going on today but um yeah yeah it's really I, I don't i don't really have a strong point of view on whether ubi would would solve that i do think if a candidate from a political standpoint adopted that and had enough momentum behind him or her um and had the political will to push that through it would be a very savvy political tactic mm -hmm. yeah and we've seen andrew yang even though he didn't have a great first debate performance he's been rising in the polls even still if i'm if i'm andrew yang i'm i'm taking a long-term view on politics because you know before we were all born there were people running for president over three different election cycles right and so sometimes people's messages are just a little too early or they're not good on the trail um our our current president has already run for president before right most people mm -hmm. don't kind of forget about that so if i were him i think he's super smart um you know, it, right now seems like a great um, a great way for him to evangelize himself and his ideas because um, he has that platform and to even have a longer range view. Like he's pretty young, right? Like maybe 42. Yeah. And, and we were amazed that the topic of automation didn't come up once in the 2016 election. It was like everyone was just totally unaware or willfully ignorant. Well, if you... Yeah, I don't know if you got like how close you follow politics, but what happened in the, you know, if I were to whittle down what happened in the 2016 GOP race is that you had like, uh, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but you had a pr pretty stacked um, list of like 15 or so people that had real executive experience and a like a few very well-funded campaigns. And they basically got, completely crushed right so by march it was more or less over um whereas you know in january people were thinking oh will this be jeb bush versus maybe one or two other people so mm -hmm. so what happened in that time frame you know there wasn't that much debate um and then on the democratic side you had um two people going after it where you know depending on your point of view you could say it was um, sort of hamstrung, right, or tilted in the favor of somebody. And so there was, really wasn't that debate. And then once you got to the general election, it just turned into a circus, right? So right. so this, this idea of, like, debating these things or, um, you know, wasn't what the audience wanted, <laughs> right? The audience wanted something else, and, they you know, they got that. Yeah, so... So what do you think is the most telling indicator of who's going to perform well? It seems to me like the candidates that have won have all been authentic to some degree. Like Trump won. He may be a dick, but he's an authentic dick. Like He's not <laughs> pretending to be a nice guy. And then yeah. Obama was authentic in his own way. Clinton was authentic in his own way. So how do you see the current candidates and how that may affect their performance? Yeah, not that I... Um seek to agree with him but i think the the dilbert the dilbert guy um, scott adams uh, we talk about him a yeah. lot on this podcast yeah i think it's uh it's a politics is a persuasion game uh and you do have to persuade people to care about you and your issues i think and so i would just look at who's the most persuasive um it 
you know, whether they're authentic or not, I feel like part of persuasion is authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. People, I believe people are intelligent enough, regardless of education, to pick up on most of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And people care about, you know, either one or two issues very strongly. Uh, So if I were to look at the field of, like, who's the most persuasive um, on the... Are you asking now on the Democratic side? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my I made a prediction on Twitter that I think um, it's not like an endorsement. I just think right. Who this do you think's got the best shot? I think I think Buttigieg has the best shot. Interesting. Yeah, and and what I would say as a side note is I think Kamala Harris, if she plays her cards well is guaranteed a slot on the ticket, either at the top or the mm. or the VP slot. Yeah, I know that was Scott Adams' choice was Kamala, yeah. but it does seem but, like but, she's gonna get, been getting dragged on Twitter recently from having, you know, very political solutions that may not work well, like her recent thing about, about you know, student debt forgiveness where you have to jump through all these hoops and everyone's yeah. joking. That I mean, only, I think if... It, yeah. Yeah, but if we're, I mean, I don't want to get into like a, a raw political discussion, but I think if you're just thinking about it in terms of persuasion, right, and and buying into the fact that, um, it, it, let me rephrase it. I think persuasion is the name of the game. It's like the, the Dilbert author's way, Scott Adams' way, is what work is working now. Whether you like that or not, you know, mm-hmm. that's what, that's what's happening. I would argue that, Part of persuasion, not entirely, is some of authenticity. Whether you like that person's authenticity or not, um, there are markets for the different types of authenticity. And as I look at the current field as it stands today, I'm sure a lot of them are super nice people. And I'm sure they have good policy proposals and they're ethical and they're people you would enjoy hanging out with. If I look at it purely based on like who can be persuasive, I... I my instinct is that Buttigieg could be the most persuasive in that group. Right. Um, but, but, you know, it's still very, very early. Yeah. Well, we'll watch the debates closely. So I'd yeah. like to now sort of talk about the shifting face of America because that's, that's sort of related. And there's this one stat that Andrew Chen shared that I thought was really interesting, which mm. was basically around what do kids in America want to be when they grow up? And then what do kids in China want to be when they grow up? And Mm. in the U.S., in like the 60s and 70s, most kids in America wanted to be an astronaut. And that is the the career that most people in China want to be, most kids in China. But today, in the U.S. and in the U.K., being a YouTube influencer or vlogger is now the number one slot. So I'm, I'm curious what you what insights can be drawn from that trend and <laughs> do you think like america's moving in the direction of being like the entertainers of the world whereas china's sort of taking on the role as like the dominant technology player or any thoughts there yeah i think i think there are like two separate questions um you know i was a venture partner with ggb capital for 3 years and they've been you know they have a huge team in china and been extremely successful um, at this, um, and I, I would never, I would never say I saw this firsthand, um, 
but it's just something I've picked up through osmosis and spending time with a lot of people on that team and a lot of entrepreneurs in their network. Um, for example, you know, GGB was the one of the main early investors in Alibaba. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very early. I think there are. I always say like my kind of standard line about um, China, and it's such a complex topic. Um, well, I would say three things. One is what the what the current administration is doing, and there's there's sort of like their stance towards China and the the desire to negotiate. I think is a very deeply held, rooted belief that goes beyond the folks who are in the current administration. It, it, it will be something we live with for our lives and that sort of tension, right? Um, in terms of like technology, economics, all of that. Um, two is I, I think a lot of people in the U.S. don't realize what a juggernaut um, like WeChat and WePay is mm-hmm. and just how integrated that system is because they they skipped that desktop phase and went right into mobile and tablets and so the ability to like harmonize everything and like use a subway use a checkout and do everything with like like you mentioned in that consolidated way is incredibly powerful in terms of like speed of business speed of connection right there's um, not really a private sector and public sector it's sort of just all one in china which well i I just think a lot a lot of people here, I'm making kind of a different point. I don't think people in the West or the U.S. understand the power of that consolidation because right now you've got friends in Messenger and then you're using Google Wallet, but then the terminal is telling you to use Apple Wallet. And it's it's kind of just a shit show, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're coming from a WeChat or WePay world and you look at what we're doing, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. So, so the point I usually make to a U.S. audience is, what if it was all integrated, right? And this complexity was moved away. And with the scale that it brings, the cost of that company providing that service goes down. Now, you could argue we have more competition for that. But I, w- I would argue in some cases it causes a lot of friction. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> the, sec- the final thing I would say is that um, while I do think there's incredible entrepreneurial talent in the US and will always be the hotbed for innovation. I don't think people really understand the depth and desire and hunger and tenacity and work ethic of entrepreneurs in China. Uh, you could argue it's unhealthy. <laughs> right. But but it it is it is on another level and you know if you go back to my life meter comment around, you know, some mix of industrial insight acumen, uh, technical uh, acumen, and then also resiliency, grit, determination. Over time, I feel like they will catch up on, continue to catch up on technology innovation. I mean, they've already won a lot of interface innovate, innovation, right, with TikTok and uh, Musical.ly and kind of all this stuff. They've proven that. Um, you know, but can it move over into cloud infrastructure, networking, microservices, uh, and all these other things? I would take that 20, 60 year bet that they will. And so I think if you put all that together, that's where a lot of the tension comes from. 
Right. So given those advantages that China has just from their culture, the way they operate, how do you see the artificial general intelligence game getting played out? And I'm not sure your opinion on this, but you know, people like Nick Bostrom and Elon Musk have talked about it as this potentially life or death scenario where you pull a black ball out of the urn of invention and it could be the doom for all of us. So do you think that sort of concern <laughs> is totally overblown? Do you think we should be concerned? What are your I, thoughts on that? You know, there's no way to prove it. So I, I personally agree with the like Elon's original thesis, which is the the battle for like AI systems and machine learning systems and the underlying data that makes those things unique will be a, will be a source of conflict amongst nations. And I think you're already seeing that happen today, right? So I, I subscribe to that. Um, if you just think about going back to our discussion earlier about Cambridge Analytica, I can't remember what the retailer is in the U.S. Maybe it was like Target or, or something like Target. One, oh yeah, it was a Target um, credit card breach. Apparently it was found that the way that the perpetrators entered the system was through an HVAC, like air conditioning system. Oh, wow. wow. And so the line I always use is that the, the U.S. Uh, information flow has been has been influenced by not just one country, but I think multiple countries. Mm. And that social media was the kind of quote-unquote HVAC system of how it came through. And then when you start putting in bots and you start taking natural language and you start layering in like automatic account creation, automatic content generation, automatic conversational interfaces. That is your low-level AI working. Right. And so to me, that's already happening. Um, now, I don't, I, I don't know like what an end game would be, <clears throat> but you see a little bit going back to what the administration is doing around cutting off with CFUS um, certain investments in certain spaces that are deemed strategic from foreign investors. So so whether we agree on that or not, or Elon's right or not, that's happening now. Um, yeah, because it does seem like the main narrative is that technology is progressing at a breakneck pace and that it does seem that fairly soon, like in our lifetime, a, some sort of AI would be smarter than every human on the planet. However, there are also some contrarians, people like Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein, who actually make the opposite argument, which is that our science and technological progress has been somewhat stagnating recently, where we've made some great progress in the world of bits, and we've made some great progress in biotech. But if you look at the other areas, we haven't been making that much progress. And even in the world of bits, like... The, the newest iPhones are increasingly less exciting than the last version. So yeah. what would you, what do you, what's your make sense of, of their argument? I think um, for folks who are interested in this topic, I know that Mark Andreessen gave a, they publicized a talk with Dan Premack from Axios about um, his views on this. And so 
he described Peter's views as sort of the extreme stagnation. And I think it's less about iPhone innovation and it more goes back to the, the flying cars versus 140 characters right? Uh, sort of comment he had. The, the way I interpret Peter's point of view is that um, it, it's, an, it's a U.S. national argument, which is what makes America great and exceptional is like doing these big projects. Like, you know, there was this like 50 year anniversary of putting people, uh, you know, U.S. going to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, what are those projects today? What, what are those big, you know, could we build the interstate highway system today? Uh, could, could we do those big things today? Or are we sitting at home in our parents' den, you know, doing vlogs? And I, I think that's what Peter, uh, that's how I interpret Peter's comment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where, where is that big vision of, you know, you could argue, you know, like, like um, self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles could be, could be one of these things where, like, um, it's going to happen in Singapore earlier, it's going to happen in China earlier. And it just, like, if you listen to what Bill Gurley says, like, he's studied the space and he's like, won't happen in the U.S. for a generation because of whatever political views about it. Or in stem cells, you think about the U.S. is about a decade behind Singapore and the U.K. because there were there were ethical concerns around it, which, again, I think are valid. Um, it's just that if you take Peter's thesis all the way over, he's sort of saying, like, look, if we don't if we don't do it and understand the future is coming, um, other countries will do it and they will scoop up that talent and that talent will then uh accumulate back in the, in the form of returns for that economy. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like the private sector has had to pick up some of the slack that the public sector hasn't, hasn't really delivered on. Like, you know, SpaceX made innovations in space travel because there was really nothing going on with NASA. And now NASA's sort of re-energized to start making some moves. So it's... Mm-hmm. You could say the same thing for universities, too, to channel more Peter. Um, you know, all these top universities had what they call TLOs, technology licensing offices, you know. But now those people who are building the technology in the schools, they want to drop out and go to Y Combinator. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so you know. So is something wrong with the way the government operates then? And and if so, oh, wow. like, what could we do? To... <laughs> I know these are all really is, big questions. Is, is something wrong with the government? I'm, you know, <laughs> even though I'm, I'm like a slightly, like, I'm left of, slightly left of center on a lot of issues and slightly right of center on a bunch of issues, um, independent of candidates. That's like my, you know, my own kind of leaning. Um, I kind of subscribe to like the kind of pre, the er, like the pre-1980 or kind of early Reagan, uh, Reagan era stuff where, or his political philosophy where it's like you you have limited government um you certainly have you certainly have and you need government in cases but to to get the best and brightest and like to push innovation 
you have people who are taking risks, doing things um, in the private sector to push forward industry. I I do believe that. Uh, certainly, there's 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 places where like, you know, should there be a government body regulating, like what companies like go out into space and use space? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual work of getting there, maybe, um, you know, maybe 50 years ago when we could marshal those resources and attention for a moon landing, that world has changed now, and the challenges are are different, and so that's kind of where we are. Right. So, given that there's this responsibility that the private sector has to drive innovation and make things better, how do you balance what might be a really good investment opportunity as far as financial returns are concerned versus it being a good outcome for, you know, American citizens and society as a whole? Yeah, I think there are clearly some things um, that we see as investors that could be seen as negative or mean-spirited. Um, those are very few. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things that are just not exciting where you say, okay, if I imagine this works and then this world, eh, I'm just not that excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain things that sound really good and you can get seduced by those and not do your work as an investor. Um, so the, the way... The way I think about it is, do I want to just follow this person or this team of people into what they're building mm-hmm. um, and just sort of like reduce the decision to underwriting the person and standing behind the person? Because ultimately when they raise more capital or they have recruits coming in, you're kind of selling against the, your belief in that person. Um, the final thing I'll say on that is like in that um, – Dan Premack interview, Mark had a really interesting line to paraphrase <clears throat> where he, he, he basically saying like, look, a lot of people, for example, with Twitter, you know, they wanted, you know, want Twitter to do better and could it do better? Yes. Right. It's not the best well-run service right now, but it, it's really hard to wind back the clock and say like in the early, early days, you would know what you're kind of unleashing. Right. right? Cause you're just, you're just doing stuff. You're building product. You're not stopping to think about what it could be. And so his point, and I agree with this, is like a lot of people building new technologies and new networks um, don't really know, like once a genie's out of the bottle, like where it can go or whose hands it can go in. Um, right. Yeah, I remember yeah. that that came up in, in regards to Facebook where you know, Mark Zuckerberg had this notion that, oh, if you just connect all the people in the world, then wonderful things will happen. And, you know, that's obviously not not all that happened. Yeah. yeah. So I just have one other question before we get into sure. the, fu- the future scenarios where we, we talk about what's going to happen in the future. And mm-hmm. that is, you know, from your perspective, are there any particular industries or spaces that we should keep an eye on as we're thinking about how the future is going to unfold? So the way I would answer that question is to outsource it to the best investors. And so I would just follow what does, like, for example, the Lightspeed team do in cloud infrastructure and consumer where they've had major success? Or what does is, what is Founders Fund invest in because they're contrarian from the beginning? Or what does, um, like, uh, on an international scale, where does Sequoia – 
um, what kind of things is Sequoia investing in? Not to say that these people are going to catch everything, uh, but to me, it's like the best filter um, of like very smart people making decisions about what the future could be. But again, I don't think they're sitting around trying to imagine what the world looks like in five to ten years. I think they're more um, thinking about like the shape of business and like backing certain people that they mm-hmm. think could be could be uh, kind of game changers. Awesome. Well, let's take a quick break and then let's get into the future scenarios. All right, Samil, in your mind, what is the worst case scenario for the future of venture capital? Worst case scenario. So you you could think of it as what's the worst case from a VC perspective of how things are going to change or the worst case from a founder perspective, either way. Yeah, well, let's take all the constituents because there's LPs where the money comes from, the VCs right. who allocate and manage, and the founders who receive. I think the um, you know the worst case scenario for an LP is that capital becomes so abundant that if they're not in the few groups that the best entrepreneurs are tilting towards, um, they will get shut out of that innovation curve. And they're they're using venture capital to provide alpha to their portfolio, mm-hmm. right? Because because it's really the only durable way to get real multiples on your money. The best case scenario for LPs, uh, <laughs> you're going to hear this name a lot, is a is a massive recession. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, because they have very patient capital, and so um, the if they can lower their cost basis. In companies right now, which is very very high, um, they'll see greater returns. From a VC's point of view, the the worst case scenario is honestly really playing out right now, which is there is intense competition. The private market has um, has elongated. You have the SoftBank closing their second hundred billion dollar fund. Uh, you have very intense competition for companies that are working. Um, a lot of new people funding new startups that are really hard to track. It's it's like um, completely changed. Hmm. The the best case scenario for a VC is again a massive recession uh, where capital becomes a little more scarce um, and. You know, again, where, where the VCs are a little bit aligned in that matter with LPs. Um, the best case scenario for a founder is right now. It is uh, open season. Uh, it, it, it is a very capital abundant environment. Um, the worst case scenario for a founder, I think, there's none. I think the worst case scenario for a founder, it, it, well, there is one, but it's non-monetary, is is misallocating time. Hmm. And so people who are going down whatever path they're going down, and, and if they're not really being really intentional about picking what they're focusing on, it goes back to the attention piece, the opportunity cost especially when you're in your 20s where you know most people haven't hitched up with a partner yet most people don't have kids yet 
Um, most people don't have like a huge balance sheet or mortgage. That time is kind of free time right now to go make something or make something happen. And picking the wrong thing is the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is waking up when you're 32 and being like, holy shit, what did I just spend mm -hmm. those last 12 years doing? Right. Yeah. Do you think there's a undersupply or if the supply has changed recently due to, let's say, the student debt crisis or anything like that? Do you think supply the supply of, of what? entrepreneurs? Um, there's an over, oversupply. Okay. Oversupply. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, I think it's great that more people are starting things mm -hmm. and you kind of take the argument of you let a thousand flowers bloom. Mm -hmm. Um I think what it ends up doing is fragmenting the talent away. And so teams that would naturally form or grow around things that are working, it becomes harder and costlier to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're going to have a lot of people in kind of a tougher failure mode, which is probably good for resiliency. But I do think there could be some like mental health issues that come out of that. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, that's what I would say. Do you ever think that the venture space is going to be systematized? And, you know, I know, like, for instance, AngelList is sort of trying to do this right now where you basically can have a pipeline of potential investments rather than, you know, what has existed up until now, which is a more nuanced, like, relationships, knowing the founders, having your own system. How do you see, you know, that evolution yeah, I mean, I'm very much more on the relationship side because I think it's like an interpersonal business. Um, there are certainly ways to do it, sitting in Chattanooga and clicking a few buttons um, where you can invest. And I think that works too. Um, will it become more systematized? Hmm. I think that both will grow. Actually, I think if I see some of the best, like most talented founders right now, they are picking people with like brands uh, to leverage and networks to leverage. Mm -hmm. And it may not necessarily be a relationship where you're going over to your investor's house for barbecue or like hanging out, but there's something you're getting that goes beyond a systemized way of, of investing or working with an investor. Um, but I think there are other people who are just like, hey, I just want a million bucks. And if I get it through a couple of Angelist syndicates where I don't meet the people, that's fine. And if I don't make do with that, then shame on me. Um, so I think both work. Yeah. Justin, do you have any thoughts on the, the worst case or the best case? We kind of touched on both of them. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Samil hit a lot of kind of uh, what I was thinking also. But one of the things, you know, in the very worst case, I don't know about how likely this is, would be if there's a, a change in the political landscape that makes it difficult to start companies, which means, you know, the maybe the VC um, industry as a whole is affected and shrinks in size. Because I think VC is such, it fills such an important gap in the market, it helps bring these ideas to fruition um, that help drive society. So that's 
that would be kind of the worst case is if there's some change that makes it not um, easy to start businesses or to give capital to businesses. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine what that is because a lot of the people with the largest funds, those funds are contractually guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And so those institutional investors have to supply those funds Mm -hmm. and the investors get paid on deploying the funds. Yeah. So, so I think that on the, on the capital flow side, um, you know, again, barring a recession that will always be there. Mm-hmm. I think if it's harder to start companies, it, you're getting into more like micro um, and geo arguments where like, you know, I'm sure you've seen online people debating in the Bay Area, the cost of living in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. the, the lack of um, housing increases relative to like immigration here from other states, right. and then the corresponding lack of transit infrastructure to go along with it. So, you know, mm-hmm. will, will other regions capitalize on that, you know, TBD? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could argue New York is capitalizing on some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, LA is uh, maybe a little bit behind, but also capitalizing on some of that. Best case scenario. Hopefully, my hope is like it's up to the rest of the country to, to, take the opportunity that the Bay Area is giving them uh, and, uh, you know, make use of it. I think there are some, uh, you know, non-tier one cities like uh, Pittsburgh that uh, are doing a really great job. Like I think Paul Graham wrote about Pittsburgh a long time ago, if you search back through his archives, and kind of what they're doing about wooing big tech, having CMU, Pitt, um, UPMC, um, it just seems like that's a good case study for other cities to kind of say, you know, okay, beyond talking about it politically, how can we actually go do it? Um, yeah. Yeah, that geographic startup inequality is interesting. And that's sort of how I framed my best case, worst case is really all around equality of opportunity. Like if as many potential founders have the equal opportunity, you know, whether through education and not having tremendous amounts of debt and also being able to get connected with VCs, um, you know, that'll just be better to create a more dynamic economy. Whereas, you know, the Mm -hmm. worst case would be there really is not much opportunity for people that grow up in the wrong state or don't have, you know, the ability to pay for their own college and then have all this debt and feel like they got to stick with this job, even if they hate it and they don't get that period of of inspiration. I I agree with you personally. I think the focusing on the input, right, because we can't control what the outcomes are. Mm -hmm. But if we focus on the input um, and giving people those chances, um, I do think that, like, makes for smart ethical policy. Um, you know, it's very hard to argue with that. I think part of where the tension is in entrepreneurship is that, um, you know, there are small business grants, there are grants out there that people have to labor through to get. But when you're talking about private money flow and institutions or managers of that institution that are entrusted to be the steward of that, to allocate it, it's, those aren't meant to be grants. They're meant to be investments. And so that's a little bit of a disconnect. I would also say on top of that is that, you know, what happens when those those chances are are taken and out there and they don't work? 
Right. Um, which the, we know the majority of them won't work. Um, and so then that, that, that creates a second order effect of saying, well, my, th- my company didn't work because of this or my fund didn't perform because of this. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, like there is some individual responsibility there. The other thing is that like, I know tons of people here and myself included, like who moved here without much dough and people made it their different ways. And so I just still believe like that's always a possibility. Um, there is risk involved, like going back to the, you know, one of my favorite speeches is a Reagan speech after the Challenger disaster in 1986, where it's like, you know, he described them as like true pioneers. Hmm. Um, you know, you just don't do that without bearing some kind of risk. I think one of my concerns is just more f- philosophical concern about the nature of the debate in society today is that people want to be able to take um, uh, have all these opportunities without bearing the risk and you know it's it it isn't entirely the outcomes aren't entirely fair mm-hmm. um, I know if you look back on my blog I wrote about the jet acquisition by Walmart and I'm sure I, I know when I wrote this and I wrote it in the post that a bunch of people who were doing e-commerce stuff and maybe doing really well or, or struggling but trying to get an exit probably read that and just said, shit, you know, like, what the hell's going on? Um, and it's not fair, you know, mm. but yeah. but that is that is the world we live in. And. Um, you know, no outcome is guaranteed. Doesn't doesn't mean someone's going to buy your company. You know, if you raise 200k of funding, and you know, no one buys your company for a couple million bucks, like that's just the reality. Um, and so, if I kind of go back again, it's a very Reagan-esque comment that I don't agree with everything Reagan did, but I think it's just like, what is the purview of the individual? What is the responsibility of the individual to to go make it take that risk and then own the risk associated with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that's a characteristic. A lot of VCs look for in founders is having an internal locus of control rather than an external locus of control. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what we're underwriting is like the individual agency, right? Like why did Sequoia like Steve jobs? They probably thought, man, this guy's and you know, this guy's going to do something. He's mm. he's risk. He's showing a lot of appetite for risk. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we talk about where we think the the likely case of venture capital is going. Most likely scenario. I I've only been investing for six and a half years and. You know, I sort of remind myself of that where I do I do like to follow the industry closely and share those insights on Twitter. And mm. I feel like I I follow it closer than most people. Um, but that doesn't mean I know I know more um, and I don't have that long history. What I would say in the six and a half years of being able to write small checks in the companies and working with all these large VC firms, I have never seen an environment in the six and a half years like it is today for venture. And so 
what I see is people with really large chip stacks, um, a lot of companies being funded, a lot of micro funds sprouting up, and I really don't know how it's going to shake out. Uh, mm -hmm. In this kind of environment, what I've decided to do is that what can I control as an investor when things seem out of control around me? Yeah. And that is qualitatively being highly selective on the people that I underwrite and sort of saying, can I stand behind this person um, ethically, integrity, talent-wise? And then I think, too, is just a more quantitative approach, which is how can I get enough shots on goal to, to smooth out the power law that happens mm -hmm. in your portfolio and keep the cost basis as low as possible because that's the only way you can drive a return. Um, and so those are the things that are in my control. And then the other, the other piece is just pacing. So like you, do you take a fund and you invest it over 24 months or 20 or 30 months or 36 or, you know, 40, uh, 42, um, and, and just building time diversity into the portfolio. Those are the things that I focus on to, to exact some control on an otherwise chaotic environment. Yeah. I was kind of curious what your philosophy was on portfolio construction. Like, do you choose companies that will have some sort of synergistic effect between one another, or do you try to diversify as much as possible? Or do you focus on specific ideas and founders um, more than yeah. anything else? That that's smart. I I I probably should be thinking of it more in the way you describe, which is a little more holistic. Mm -hmm. I think of portfolio construction today, and thank you for the the prompt. I think mm -hmm. of it more as um like the number of core companies where we have five to ten points of ownership in mm -hmm. those companies, and how many can I fill in there. <laughs> um, yeah. But what you're asking is a more sophisticated question around, you know, what sector balance or stage mm -hmm. of maturity balance or like innovation curve or revenue curve balance. Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't really done that um, mm -hmm. yet, but I, I will reflect on it now that you've asked the question. When when LPs and VCs talk more about portfolio construction, it's, it's basically just more the math and the cap table of like, how are you going to yeah. generate that return? I think you're thinking about it like, hey, how do you put in a mix of consumer? How do you get some geographic diversification? Things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, so some of that we have done. Some of it we haven't, frankly, I haven't frankly thought about it. So I'll need to reflect on that. Okay. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Samil, for your time. And yeah, thank you, guys. If there's one thing I've learned from this episode, it's that there has hardly ever been a better time to be a founder. And that the future looks pretty bright for founding companies and getting investor dollars if you have a worthwhile idea and if you're willing to put in the hard work and the resiliency. Totally. Are there any, any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I would just underscore that and say that, you know, once you take that leap as a founder or even investor starting your own fund, you, ju you just, I think part of the unwritten contract is that you have to be willing to take take on the risk associated with that, even if the outcomes are fair, or sorry, unfair, or um, not the way you wanted it to go, and, and sort of be grateful for the, for the ability to take that risk. Um, 
Whereas like what I just feel a lot today and I can't pinpoint the stat, it just feels like people feel there's an increasing sense of entitlement around I should be funded and then I should be driving an outcome. And I just don't think the world works like that. Stay hungry and humble. (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening. This has been the Future of Venture Capital. Check out Samil's blog, haystack.vc. You can find him on Twitter at Samil, S-E-M-I-L. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. The past, the present, and the future. Hey futurists, if you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.